Well, let me welcome all of you to Christ Journey Church, Gables Campus, Kindle Campus joining us online, Miami Beach hosting your service today. We love you. We're praying for you, as well as all of those joining us, uh, church online, as well as social media. I uh, greet you today in the name of Jesus and in the spirit of grace and truth as we seek to answer one of the timeless questions of our age together. Is Jesus really God? This is the question of the ages, isn't it? Is Jesus really God? Of the four Gospels that recorded Jesus' life, death, ministry, resurrection, ascension, the, the Gospel of John seeks to answer this single question in particular. Is Jesus really God? And this message today will take a deep dive into the Gospel of John. As the youngest disciple, the Apostle John witnessed Jesus' life up close and personal. And then about 45 years later, he penned this gospel to Jews, but mostly non-Jews, who lived in a very heavily Greek-influenced area of Asia Minor, specifically in the town of Ephesus, the same book from which we get the letter to the Ephesians, the same town where Timothy later pastored, the Apostle John also pastored there. And he's addressing this question in the light of people who are, who are worshiping a pantheon of gods and who are adhering to Greek philosophy. And he's answering this question, is Jesus really God? Did Jesus really say and meant what he said when he made the claims about himself as God? This is why John's gospel doesn't contain any genealogies, any record of Jesus' birth, any part of his childhood, temptation, transfiguration. John's gospel doesn't talk about the appointment of the disciples. John's gospel also doesn't give account of Jesus' parables. You won't find those. You won't find Jesus' ascension in John's gospel or the great commission to his disciples. We need to rely on the other three Gospels for that information about Jesus' life and his ministry. But instead, the Apostle John gave us a great gift. He gave us Jesus in his own words. More than the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John recorded long discussions by Jesus and showed us through his life, ministry, death, and resurrection that he is indeed who Jesus said he is. John began his Gospel writing one of the great phrases of the New Testament saying, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. John's opening words in the beginning immediately linked his gospel with the opening words of the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, which also begins with the same phrase, in the beginning, God. In his gospel, John makes the very same claim. In the beginning, God. Yet different from Genesis, John's gospel opened with, in the beginning was the word, and the word was God. The word here means Jesus. That's what the word means. John's making a direct allusion to Jesus as the word of God himself. Whereas Genesis opens with God as creator, John opens with God as the word. The one through whom God created and established his presence in the world. Before the world ever came into being, God existed as one God expressed in three distinct persons. The Father, the Son, Jesus Christ, the Word of God, 
and the Holy Spirit. Think of the Trinity like water, steam, and ice. Three distinct expressions of the same molecule. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are three distinct expressions of the one same God. And from God's abundant love that somehow he enjoys in the midst of being in fellowship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit together, three distinct expressions of the one same God, it's a great mystery of our faith. But from the perfect love fellowship of three in one, God spoke through the word and all of creation came into being. Creation came into being through love. In Genesis chapter 1, the pinnacle of creation was humanity, you and me, made in God's image. But in John chapter 1, the pinnacle of life was God himself who came to us as a human being in order to do something very particular. God's word was made flesh through Jesus of Nazareth who once lived and died both fully human and fully God, two in one, amazing, an amazing mystery of our faith. Nothing came into being without first being made through the word. And likewise, what John wants the reader to know is that in Christ, in the word made flesh, Jesus now is making all things new. God created all things, and now in Christ, all things are being made new. In fact, in the book of Revelation, a book traditionally ascribed to the Apostle John. At the very end of his letter, God gave John a great vision of Jesus sitting on his throne, on his seat of justice, reigning, and from that seat, Jesus speaks these words, behold, I am making all things new. Revelation 21 verse 5. What John starts in his gospel as the word becoming flesh in order to make all things new, John later fulfills by a vision God gave to him of Jesus making all things new. In the opening phrase of his gospel, John used a really interesting word for this word, word, that he refers to Jesus. Did you notice that John actually doesn't call Jesus by his first name? He doesn't say, in the beginning was Jesus. And Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. He doesn't say that. Instead, he calls Jesus the word. And he uses a really interesting term here. He uses the Greek word logos, which translates literally to the word, but can be further translated to mean a communication whereby the mind finds its expression. In Greek philosophy, the word can also be defined as the principal reason that governs the world. I find this particular understanding of Jesus really fascinating in our series, Explore God. Because here, the Apostle John, the one who actually walked with Jesus, who knew Jesus, who listened to his teachings, the Apostle John here is is making an argument in his own gospel that in the Word of God, in the Logos of God, in Jesus Christ himself, that God gave us his mind. That we not only see God's character reflected in Jesus, and we not only see God's works of restoration and healing and, and God's supernatural work being done in Jesus, but we also see God's mind come to life in Jesus. And I think for us that that really matters. Because if you grew up like me at all, and you grew up with a kind of faith that calls you to check your faith at the door, so to speak, kind of faith that says, hey, just, you know, believe these things? John's gospel actually says 
No, think about these things. Apply your mind to these things. Give your critical thought to who Jesus is and what Jesus did for you because that's exactly what Jesus, that's exactly what God did in Jesus Christ. God gave us his mind. And I believe God wants you to show up with your mind. Bring your questions. That's the whole point of this series, that you would bring your questions and that you would apply your critical thought, you would apply your heart to these questions because that's exactly what God did for you in Jesus. We know Jesus as God in part by applying our mind to critical thought and nurturing a faith that seeks understanding, but we also know Jesus in part by God's revelation to us. Jesus said to his core 12 disciples in John chapter 6, verse 65, he said this, no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. And then if you read on in that same passage, it says that many people left Jesus because of that. And you wonder why. I think because all of us come to Jesus and we apply certain things onto Jesus. A lot of people follow Jesus at this time because Jesus fed them. Or maybe because they thought Jesus was a good miracle worker or a good teacher. But is that really, is that really why Jesus came to merely feed or do miracles or to teach? Or was there something bigger going on? In fact, after all of those people left Jesus, all, after all these peripheral followers decided to go a different way, Jesus looked at his 12 and he said, so what are you going to do? Are you going to leave me too? And Simon Peter answered him in John chapter 6, verse 67, saying this, Lord, to whom shall we go? <laughs> you and you alone have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know. Believe with your heart. Believe with your soul and your spirit, but also know with your mind that you are the Holy One of God. That's Peter's declaration of Jesus. Both Genesis chapter 1 and John chapter 1 together affirm that God created you in his image with the mind to know him and a heart and a spirit to believe in him. That's why God entered into our world as the Logos, that we might know God and believe him for eternal life. It makes sense that God would do this as a human being and not, you know, as maybe other religions or other philosophies might teach that God would come just as a spirit or as a book or as an animal perhaps. When, uh, where my wife and I used to live in California, there was this rock, there was this mountain near where we lived and on this mountain was a rock and it was called Spirit Rock and people used to go to that rock because they believed it contained magic powers. No joke. They, they thought there was special energy that came from this rock. And I thought, man, if that could really happen, that'd be kind of cool. <laughs> you know, like you go, to this, you go to this thing and whatever happens. But in reality, God did something infinitely greater than give us a rock. God gave us a human being from which we could know God and believe in him and trust for him. In him was life, John wrote. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. I believe this single statement gives us so much hope to know that whatever we may be going through in our own lives, whatever darkness we may be experiencing right now, whatever darkness you may be experiencing right now, to know that that darkness cannot overcome the light of Jesus Christ's life in you.
in Jesus is life. And all who find their lives in Jesus find life. Is Jesus really God? We're asking today. Well, my question to you would be, who else can make that kind of promise? Religion fails to make good on that promise. Instead, religion says if you do these certain things, if you follow these certain customs, then only then you'll have access to God. Ironically, if you read through the wide-sweeping history of Israel in the Old Testament, you'll notice that the very accoutrements that became the foundation for Judaism and for religion, the temple, the sacrificial system, and the law, all of those things were never intended to be an end unto themselves. Rather, those things were intended to all foreshadow the day when God would make all things right through himself in the person of Jesus Christ. In the temple, God brought his presence from heaven to earth. But in Jesus, God's presence was made fully known. And now his spirit dwells in every human heart. In the law, God gave us his truth about how we ought to live in the world. But in Jesus, we learn that his law is love and his burden is light. In the sacrificial system, God forgave the sins of the people after multiple, multiple ways and avenues of making sacrifices to God. But in Jesus, God made the final sacrifice for all sins, for all people, everywhere. As the Apostle Paul wrote in one of the great, one of the great statements in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19, saying this, For God was in Christ. So even the Apostle Paul picked up on this motif. God lived in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. And this word reconcile, I think of it just like a big bear hug. You know, just, you know, God's just like taking the world and bringing the world into his arms. That's what reconcile means. It means bringing the world back to himself. And get this, saying this, no longer counting people's sins against them. Man, what a radical statement. How many of you woke up this morning counting people's sins against them? (laughs) You know, Paul doesn't say here counting people who believe, no longer counting people's sins who believe against them. He doesn't say something like that. He says no longer counting anybody's sins against them. Friends, this this is our good news. That's always been God's end game, to live into the fullness of his love with us. You know, our sin has prevented that reality from coming into fruition. But God's vision on this has never wavered. The psalm is saying, one of the great psalms in Psalm 67, may your ways be known throughout the earth. You're saving power among people everywhere. May the nations praise you, O God. Yes, may all the nations praise you. Let the whole world sing for joy because you govern the nations with justice and guide the people of the whole world. God's heart has always been and always will be for the whole world. And another passage from Isaiah, one of the great passages telling of the, of the Messiah to come. Isaiah wrote, the Lord has honored me and my God has given me strength. He says, you will do more than restore the people of Israel to me. I will make you a light to the Gentiles who are all people not part of Israel. And you will bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. The noun you that Isaiah used in this passage refers to the Messiah, the one who would bring salvation, not by means of a religion or by means of categorizing who's in and who's out, but by the means 
of the one who saves. The power of God who saves. Ultimately, the temple, the sacrificial system, the law, all of those things, they served as signposts pointing to the one who would ultimately come to make those things known and and real. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, John wrote. We have seen his glory, God's glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and full of truth. Here again, John uses another really interesting word that I just want to peel back for you for just a moment. So this word dwelling hails from this verb eskinosin. And eskinosin literally means to tent. To tent. We don't really speak that way in the English language, but it means to tent. And really, John's hearkening back all the way to the book of Exodus when the people would set up a tabernacle and where God's presence would fill the tabernacle wherever they wandered in the desert so that God's presence would be with them. So perhaps a a, a more literal, the most literal way that we could read this phrase would be, the word became flesh and tented among us. Or the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And I I love this way of thinking about this particular phrase. Because God's presence, just as it dwelt in the tabernacle, in Exodus, and just as it dwelt in the temple after Solomon built it, you can read all of these moments throughout the Old Testament, now God's presence dwelt in the person of a human being whose spirit comes upon all of us and dwells in every believing human heart. Amazing. You can see the progression of God's mercy and of God's presence with humanity all throughout history. I once heard a story about prisoners of war at a Vietnam prison camp who faced unspeakable torture, mental and physical torture. In fact, the the prison guards at this camp, they would fake raids and they would open up the bars to the doors and they would lead the people to the edge of the camp masked as liberators only to take them to the edge of the camp and tell them that they were actually their prison guards and force them to march all the way back to their prison cells without food, without water. I mean, they just crushed their spirits and crushed any hope of ever being rescued. After some time, a U.S. Marine attachment took on the responsibility and the operation of freeing that particular prison camp. And when they walked in, they saw all of these men dotting the floor of the prison camp, just brutalized. Their minds, their bodies just brutalized after years of being in this camp. And when the Marines got there, they they told the the prisoners, all right, get up, follow us, we're going to take you to safety. But not a single one of them got up. And why not? because they didn't trust that these Marines were actually who, sa- who they said they were. And so in a stroke of genius and total compassion, one of the Marines had an idea to take off his uniform, put on the prisoner's clothes, kneel down, crawl into the fetal position next to the prisoners, look at them in the eye and say, we're here to take you home. Only then did the prisoners trust the Marines 
that they were who they said they were and follow them into rescue. When I first heard this story, I thought to myself, my God, that's exactly what Jesus did for us. It's exactly what Jesus did for us. Since the moment that sin came into our world, God has been making ways for us to come back to him. He's put signposts all throughout history pointing to him, pointing to his liberation. But like the Marine, he ultimately came to us as one of us. He took off the royalty of heaven and he put on flesh and he walked our world performing all different kinds of signs and wonders and teachings in order to look at us in the eye and say, I've always been here for you. I see you. I see where you live. I see what you long for. And I am your hope. Follow me home. That's, what, that's exactly what God did for us in Jesus. That's what's meant by the phrase, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Jesus set aside all of his rights, power, and control as God himself and instead made himself a servant so that we might trust him and see him with our eyes wide open and follow him, follow him all the way home. Is Jesus really God? That's our question. My question to you would be, who else can we trust who else can we trust to, to save us? Who else can we trust to help us? Because here's what we know. In our world and in our lives, there's a lot of different people trying to point to the way, but none of them seem to work. None of those ways seem to work and really provide the rescue that we all long for, really provide the desires of our heart. And so my question to you would be, who else can we trust to lead us in that direction? We even let ourselves down in how we lead ourselves. We're desperate to be known. We're desperate to be loved. We're desperate to matter. We're desperate to live a life of meaning. But who else can we trust to satisfy these desires? No one but Jesus. Jesus says, you can trust me. I won't let you down. And then he showed us the way by taking on the way himself, by going to the cross for us, and then by raising again from the dead on the third day for us. Have you ever wondered what differentiates Christianity from the other 4,200 world religions, give or take? There, there's a number of differences between Christianity and the other world religions, but there's one significant difference that separates Christianity from everything else, and that is this. The 4,199 other religions wouldn't dare say that their God or their philosophy would ever come down to the level of humanity. That's the single greatest difference between what we believe and what everyone else believes. That's the single difference between our faith and world religions. In fact, it's quite the opposite for world religions. In Islam in particular, the great prophet Muhammad supposedly received the Quran from Allah, but mediated through an angel because according to Islam, no human being including the great prophet, can come in contact with the holy God. In Christianity, it couldn't be more different. Rather than forcing human beings to work up to these unreachable heights, God came all the way down to us. He made his dwelling among us. He lived and loved among us. 
healed and restored us, lived and showed us his kingdom, demonstrated his righteousness for us as one of us, was betrayed by one of us. He went to the cross because of us. He went to the cross for us. He raised from the dead in order to show his power over death and to demonstrate himself not as a God who merely exists in philosophy, but as a God of life. That's what Jesus did. In his own words, Jesus said, I am the Messiah, John 4, 26, the one who came to explain everything to us in response to the woman at the well. Later, in response to a group of people who wanted to stay with Jesus because he fed them, he told them to believe in the one who God sent to them, saying, the true bread of God is the only one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. In total broken human fashion, this is all through the the Gospel of John. It will take you less than an hour and a half to read it slowly. It's not even that long. In total human fashion, The crowd around him says, well, sir, give us that bread. We want that bread every day. We want to feast on that bread, the kind of bread that will never let us hunger again. And Jesus replied to them by saying, I am the bread. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Jesus is life because in him contains all of life. He is God. A couple of chapters later, in Jesus' own words, he says, I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness because you will have the light that leads to life. And that life is for all people. God doesn't exclude anyone from that life. People exclude God. That certainly happens. Religions exclude people. That happens too. But God loves the whole world. And as as Jesus' followers, we need to love the things that God loves. We need to love the people who God loves. And in Jesus, God is showing us the way. Jesus said about himself, truly before Abraham was, I am. This statement directly refers to how God revealed himself to Moses in the book of Exodus, referring to himself as I am. Here Jesus is stating, do you remember what God said in Exodus? I am the I am. I am here with you in the flesh and fully revealed. Jesus is the same God who rescued the captives from slavery in Egypt, and is now rescuing all of humanity from its captive to slavery to sin. Jesus is that same God. Jesus is in the liberation business. On the last evening of his life, as he gathered with his disciples for supper in the upper room for what would be the last time, Jesus said once more, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust also in me. There is more than enough room in my Father's home. In fact, there is room for every person who believes. If this were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? And so Jesus here is even saying, check me. Why would I tell you something if it wasn't true? When everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am and you know the way to where I'm going. And again, in a, in a moment, in a total human moment here, Thomas, one of his disciples, who we know as Doubting Thomas, said, no, we don't, Lord. <laughs> I love this. We have no idea where you're going. 
So how can we know the way? And I'm so grateful to God that this made it in the Gospels. Truly so grateful because this is the question of all questions. This is the question that everybody's asking. How can we know the way? How do we really know the way? Can we know the way? And Jesus replied to him saying this, I am the way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. If you had really known me, you would know who my Father is. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Last week, Pastor John talked about, is Christianity too narrow? And he referred to this first, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Some call this passage narrow. I call this passage the way for all of us to know life. Every single one of us. This isn't narrow. It's not narrow to know which way to go. This is the way to life. Is Jesus really God? His words tell the truth, and his actions showed it. In Jesus' life, we see God's mind, we see God's heart, we see God's character fully alive. We see God atoning for our death and our sin in Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. And we also see God's power in Jesus' resurrection. But how do we know the resurrection is true? I want to close today by answering this question. Because if we can get this question, if we can understand Jesus' resurrection, then we can work backwards and we can stake our lives on the truth that Jesus is indeed really God. In addition to the hundreds of people who saw Jesus alive, perhaps the greatest evidence of his resurrection, I believe, is in how people responded to his death. According to each one of the four Gospels, not a single one of them viewed Jesus' death as a victory. Not a single one. They all thought Jesus' work was over. In fact, in John's Gospel, at the very end, on the evening after his resurrection, so about 12 hours after the ladies first saw him at the tomb, raised from the dead, the risen Jesus found all of the core disciples minus Judas in a locked room all by themselves for fear of death at the hands of the same people who killed Jesus. All of them in a locked room. They thought they were next. Why would they be in a locked room hunkered down for their lives if they had believed that Jesus was going to be rising again in victory? In fact, in John chapter 2, John 2 foreshadows this. He, he gives us a little bit of, of a hint of what was to come. And he says in John chapter 2, verses 19 through 22, he talked about how Jesus would, uh, how, how people could destroy the temple, and then in three days it would be raised again. And the Pharisees are thinking, how in the world could that happen? It took 46 years to build the temple. How would this happen? And John even says this was Jesus referring to his own body being raised again, and the disciples didn't believe until after the resurrection. And so even the disciples couldn't understand that a man would raise from the dead because when people die, people typically stay dead. People don't raise again from the dead. And that was just as true in the first century as it is now. Later in John's gospel, Thomas refused to believe what the other disciples saw. And so a full week later, that next Sunday evening, Jesus met Thomas. 
And even with Jesus standing in front of Thomas's eyes, he still couldn't believe what he saw. And so he said, as we all know, for those of you who know the story, he said, well, let me touch your wounds and feel your presence. At another place, even Peter, after seeing and experiencing Jesus raised from the dead, we read in the Gospels that he went back to his life before he ever met Jesus. He went back to fishing. What would compel him to go back to fishing other than in his mind, even after seeing the risen Jesus, that the mission was over? And that maybe he didn't quite understand what he saw. Or maybe he didn't grasp that he just had seen Jesus in the flesh. And so what did he do? He went back to his old vocation of fishing. Because he needed to do something. The mission was over. And so we went back to what he knew. And then perhaps the clincher, in my opinion, is how all four Gospels mention who were the first ones to see Jesus. The first ones were a group of women. Isn't that fascinating? In the first century in the Roman Empire, women were seen not only less than men, but women were seen as kind of subhuman. Like they weren't seen on the same level as men. In fact, in, in, in the Roman court system, no testimony from a woman would ever be heard in a court of law because it wasn't considered credible. Even if that woman was an eyewitness and the court knew that that woman stood as an eyewitness, her testimony wouldn't be credible. And yet somehow, in God's grace, and I hope every woman hears this, somehow in God's grace and mercy, God showed back then in the first century, no, I uphold women as equal to men. They are part of my creation. I love them just the same, and I'm going to give them the right and the honor of being the first ones to witness the empty tomb and of seeing Jesus raised from the dead. That's incredible to me. Why would you give that honor to a group of people whose testimonies would not be honored in a Roman court of law? other than to say that each one of those four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, all four men, were detailing from beginnings and the truth of what they experienced as God in the flesh through Jesus Christ. And they included their fear. They included their doubts. They included women whose testimonies would not have been credible in that culture to say together, this is what honestly happened and we're staking our lives on it. And in fact, all of them, with the exception of the Apostle John did, including hundreds and thousands more in that day and age, and then millions and millions and millions more throughout our 2,000 years of history. And so, is Jesus really God for you? That's the question we're asking. Is Jesus really God? If you were to ask me, Pastor Ryan, is Jesus really God for you? I would say, well, based on everything we discussed, I would say absolutely. But personally, I would tell you, well, I'm staking my life on it. Not only because of what I know, but because of what I've experienced. There was a time in my life when I was alone and felt completely lost. 
But then a friend introduced me to Jesus. Not the Jesus of religion, but Jesus as the Son of God, as God with us in the flesh, who went to the cross for us and raised again on the third day for us. And since then, my life has meaning, it has purpose, and I have a hope. Do you have a story like that? Father, thank you for giving us your son, for giving us you, for giving us signposts all throughout history that pointed to the day when you would come and you would make all things right. God, there are so many things in our lives that, quite frankly, aren't right. God, we face burdens of tremendous, of tremendous capacities. God, we, we face diseases. We face relational issues that just feel like they will never end. We, we face trials, all different kinds of things. But Jesus, if you're really God, then we can trust that as we put our faith in you, then you will give us the peace for which we long. You'll satisfy our desires. You'll give us rest. Your burden is light. You'll give us life. Life from this moment on into eternity. And so God, with our knowledge, but also with your spirit coming alive in us, Help us to know and trust that you are indeed God. That you are the God of life, that you are the God who saved us, and that you are a God who makes way home for us. Father, we make this prayer in your name. Now for those of you today who want to begin this journey, and perhaps for the first time, connections are being made for you, and you want to stake your life on what Jesus did for you, then would you simply join me in this prayer? God, I know now what you did. I understand that you were Jesus in the flesh and I'm giving my life to you. I want you to take the lead on my life. And so God, I'm turning from my own way. I'm going your way. Forgive me for my sins. Help me make a way back home to you. And I want today to be the first day of new life from now into eternity. If you prayed this prayer with me, Kindle Campus, Miami Beach, Church Online, here at the Gables Campus, would you just simply raise your hand so I could see you, say a prayer of blessing over you? Thank you. Thank you, man. Thank you. Miami Beach and Kendall Campus, there are pastors there waiting for you to see you. Church Online, there's an orange banner underneath this video that you can click and someone will respond immediately to you. Father, I thank you for every uplifted hand. I thank you that for today, today is a new day. You are coming alive in the hearts of individuals who are placing their trust in you as God. Father, I praise the church that you would give us the courage and the boldness to take steps in your name, 
to see with your eyes, to love who you love, and to help share this good news of faith that you indeed came to us as your son, Jesus Christ. You saved us, and you've made a way. Father, help us. We love you, and we make this prayer in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. If you enjoyed the content you saw today, I want to invite you to subscribe, comment, like, and even share it with someone you know. And if you'd like to connect with us a little bit further, I'm leaving our link to the website in the description below. You can connect with us there, find out a location, maybe we're right near you, and find out any upcoming events that we might have. See you soon.